This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 19th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. This is the second time the Taliban has taken power in Afghanistan. Cato's Mustafa Akil, author of the forthcoming book, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, discusses the Taliban's background and offers some ideas about what's to come next for the people of Afghanistan. Before we get into the new Taliban, the new kinder, gentler Taliban that we're uh, hearing about in Afghanistan, uh, who was the Taliban, oh, about 2001, uh, you know, from the 90s to about 2001? Taliban is a word which means the students. Uh, they were basically a militant Islamist group that emerged in the mid-90s in the chaos of the civil war, which began after the Soviet pullout. Actually, it's fair to say that the the all the evil, I mean, at least most of it, began with the Soviet invasion of 1979, which was a very brutal invasion with landmines and destruction of the civilian population in the countryside. Uh, so the people who fought that were freedom fighters, you know, as they were perceived at the time in the West. They were not the Taliban. The Taliban are the children of some of those people who grew up in Pakistan in some of the madrasas, religious schools, from a very hardline uh, Islamic point of view. And they came to the scene in, 19, in the mid-90s. The Soviets were gone, but there was civil war, and some of the warlords were pretty brutal. So they actually first gained some recognition by bringing law and order, punishing thieves or rapists. But they themselves uh, became the biggest gang in the town and, and occupied uh, Afghanistan and established their first rule until the U.S. invasion of 2001. So what is the Taliban promising now? Uh, they've returned to power in Afghanistan. The I will say that their messaging is uh, fairly impressive in that uh, everything that I, I've seen from Western media characterizing how the Taliban is presenting itself to the world is, hey, chill out relax. We're not the same group of people we were then. Uh, all of the restrictions that uh, your, your associate with the Taliban, we're not doing that right now. They're saying that. They're certainly taking uh, great pains to show that they are more moderate and, and less brutal, and they took some lessons. They're, on, they're not saying very clearly, but sometimes they're saying, you know, we were new at the time. We didn't know things. And I think they may be slightly less oppressive, but still they'll be they they will be very oppressive. I mean, if if we are lucky, if Afghanistan is lucky under the Taliban, it can look like Saudi Arabia or Iran today, which is still very oppressive. Uh, what happened, I think, in the past twenty years is that this was a very fanatic and also very parochial group. In the past twenty years, they had more engagement with the local population, but also the world. They opened a office in Doha, so they had contacts with relatively more moderate and mild and reasonable Islamic uh, circles. That has an influence on them, which is not bad, but still, uh, they, there's no doubt that what they will establish, what they are establishing, is an oppressive Islamic regime, which will not be democratic, which will not be liberal, which will still oppress women. Maybe, maybe they won't force every woman to wear the head-to-toe, the burqa, but they will certainly force them to wear the headscarf. I mean, I can example, give an example uh, like that. All right. So uh, 
you know, the nominal reason for the United States uh, invading Afghanistan in 2001 was that they had provided, the Taliban had provided safe harbor for Osama bin Laden when he executed the attacks that took place on September 11th, 2001. Uh, Al-Qaeda was largely uh, destroyed in various parts of the world. They were, uh, ISIS uh, came to sort of replace them, at least in popular consciousness, as the as the real bad guys. So compare the Taliban to al-Qaeda or ISIS. ISIS is the most evil thing in this spectrum. <laughs> that is like, if you want to compare, uh, you know, there was communism once and Khmer Rouge was the most evil of all common. They were genocidal, like they were killing two million people in a few years. It, it, the counterpart to that is ISIS. ISIS was the most dangerous and most aggressive one, first of all, it had no limits to its violence. It was, if you're a Shia Muslim, they would just slaughter you. Uh, they also very much uh, engaged in carrying out terrorist attacks in the middle of Europe, US, wherever they could, in Turkey, you know, uh, in, in other Muslim countries as well. Compared to ISIS, Taliban actually represents a milder strain in this universe uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, they will, and and also that's a part of the political bargain they they had apparently with the United States. They promised that they're not going to support groups like Al Qaeda or or groups that can do terrorism outside uh, of Afghanistan. Probably they, that's a lesson they learned from the two thousands. Uh, secondly, they're not trying to expand. I mean, there's a even the fact that ISIS called itself a caliphate that is the religious authority that every Muslim should supposedly follow. Um, they call the Taliban called themselves an emirate, like an emirate like UAE or Saudi Arabia. So it's like a regional thing. And therefore, and, and their understanding of Islam, again, they're very orthodox Sunnis, but not Salafi jihadists as ISIS was. So compared to ISIS, I can say this is less of a th threat for the world, but it is still, uh, it will establish a very oppressive regime. And it will give uh, big uh, spiritual support and excitement to various Islamist movements uh, in the Muslim world who also would love to capture power and establish a regime based on the Sharia as they understand in their very literalist and oppressive uh, mindset. You know, one of the among the horrific images that are coming out of Afghanistan, one is of a group of people standing, I believe, at the Kabul airport, uh, passing tiny children, infants, up to the front of the line. These are mothers and fathers who are effectively uh, saying, I want my kids, I don't know where they're going, but I want my children out of here. Uh, so in terms of uh, that kind of oppression, certainly women would face uh, a great deal of that. So what is that? What does the future look like for women in Afghanistan? Uh, I don't think the gains of the past 20 years will be all erased. I hope not. Uh, when Afghanistan was uh, ruled by Taliban in the 90s, it was a less urban, less cosmopolitan society with no internet. There wasn't any cell phones there and, and the urban population was much less uh, robust. Here, I think the Taliban will still have to come to terms with society to some extent. That's what they're signaling. Um, so it might not be as horrific as the 90s, but there is no doubt that 
Afghan women will lose some of the freedoms they they gained in the past 20 years. Certainly, their dress code will be strictly monitored. There will be obsession about not sending them alone in in the world without a mahram, that is a male guardian, uh, which, by the way, comes from a saying of Prophet Muhammad about not sending women alone. But if you have a, a less literalist mindset, you can understand that Prophet Muhammad said so because there were bandits in the desert. So it's it comes from all this literalist uh, Sharia obsession that they have uh and uh and we will also see now they're saying you know we will res- we will not oppress anybody but what will happen a few weeks from now people march against the taliban saying down with the taliban regime and we want democracy i'm sure they will not be very nice to those protesters so we're still in the beginning of it uh i, I so much sympathize with the women of afghanistan who uh, fear f- what the taliban might to- do to them uh, in Kabul, the Taliban. There's also the, the difference of between the city and the, and the urban area, the rural areas. The, the the team in Kabul is you know has some connection with Doha. They've seen the world. They're a bit more cosmopolitan, so they're trying to be a bit more nice in their rhetoric. But in more brutal areas, rural areas, uh, there are news already that Taliban is pretty brutal. So there's no doubt that this is a human tragedy, uh, and it's bad for the people of Afghanistan. And it is bad for the the world. I mean, in the Muslim world, in particular. So, so specifically, what does this mean for particularly liberty in the Muslim world? Uh, you know, we're here sitting in the the twenty first century, and you would hope you've just written a book for libertarianism dot org. Why I, as a Muslim, defend liberty. Uh, what does this mean for liberty for Muslims? Well, I defend liberty precisely because. There are Muslims out there like the Taliban, which obviously crush liberty, but we don't want to give the whole religion to their their representation, right? I mean, one thing we should remember is that, I mean, the Muslim world is 1.6 billion people and it's very diverse. So there are groups like Taliban. They are powerful. They have some popularity, but they don't represent the whole Muslim world for sure. Don't forget that, I mean, the government that the Taliban replaced in Afghanistan was also called the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. I mean, it was an Islamic government in terms of having an official religion and deeply respecting Islam, but it was not imposing a narrow understanding of the Sharia as the way of life. So that was a big distinction. Actually, the majority of the world's Muslims, you can say, in most countries, uh, want to live in a society where they're not coerced by religious thugs called the religion police to pray or so on. A lot of Muslim women want to wear the hijab, headscarf, not because a guy with a stick threatens them, but because they believe in it. And of course, they should not be threatened by a secular Western government like France as well. Now, so, I want to cl- I want to clarify some one thing. When you say religion police, that's not a euphemism. That is not a euphemism. So there are guys whose job is being a religion religious police and i have a history with them i mean i was arrested by some of them in in malaysia where you have a mild religious policing compared to to uh to afghanistan today here's the thing the islamic world is at a very critical juncture in my view uh just like christianity in the 17th century in the 17th century in the middle of europe protestants and catholics were slaughtering each other Heretics were being executed, burnt alive at the stake. And there were other Christians who were seeing there's something wrong with this, right? And we have to find a way. John Locke was one of the key figures there, of course. He wrote a letter concerning toleration, and he introduced this idea that the government should actually be secular and neutral and limited. It should only protect our rights, and it's, it should be up to us to join churches of our you know, choice and, and, it, and no heretics or so on. So, 
effort should be uh, uh, suppressed. So we are at a moment, we are at a John Locke moment, as I call it, in the Muslim world. We, there are arguments, there are bases to do that within Islam. If you read uh, the Quran from a liberal or libertarian perspective, the worst, there is no compulsion in religion, will probably intrigue you, and, and there are bases like that. But there's certainly a very coercive, oppressive orthodoxy. And Taliban is one manifestation of orthodoxy, one of the worst manifestations of that orthodoxy. Uh, but I don't think uh, we Muslims should give up to them and say, yes, you are the representatives of our religion. No, it's a battle that's going on within the religion. Mustafa Akiol is author of the forthcoming book for libertarianism.org, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. He's also author of the popular Reopening Muslim Minds, which is available now. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>